Acts 17. If you're there, say praise the Lord. Uh, last Sunday we saw the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Luke and Silas made their way to Philippi. Let's see if I can find it on this map here. Yeah, it's over there. I don't know if you can see it very well. Is there a way we can move this over, brother? Is that possible? Can you slide that over with your arrow? To the right, to the right hand side. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, sir. There you go. Oh, good. He's an expert at that, isn't he? All right, do you see Philippi right here? Okay. This is uh, as far as we made it last week in the second missionary journey. This is the line that takes you through the cities that the Apostle Paul and his team, was, the team that was with him, traveled from Troas over to Philippi and the European continent of Greece. So that's where we left them. Now, in the 17th chapter, they're going to travel about 90 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, however you want to say it. But Philippi to Thessalonica, and then to Berea down here. That's about 60 miles from Thessalonica to Berea, about 60 miles. And then the Apostle Paul will travel over to Athens. And then from Athens, he'll travel to Corinth. And then back from there... He'll go to Ephesus, and this is the location as he travels back to uh, Antioch. Antioch is over here on the side. This is Antioch of Syria. So y'all get this? Y'all see the circle that he made? Okay, Philippi to Thessalonica, 90 miles, 60 miles to Berea, and then from there to Athens is about 200 miles, then down to Corinth, and then back home to his home church after that second missionary journey. All right, so that's where we'll be today, kind of give you an idea. This is Europe, of course. This is Greece. So if you look in Acts, the 17th chapter, and verse 1, it tells us when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ, or the Messiah. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, these are the God-fearers, a great multitude and of the chief women not a few. So a lot of the chief women, very important women of that area was uh, came into the kingdom as well. Verse 5, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren, unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the other, 
they let them go. Verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. That's as far as we will read this morning. Father, we thank You right now for Your awesome Word. We ask that You would inspire us. We thank You for Your anointing. We give You all the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. All right, so they have made their way from Philippi. They've left Luke there in Philippi to be the pastor of the church, temporary pastor of the church there in Philippi. They make their way to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the location of thinkers. It was the location of trade. Thessalonica was a place of pagan worship. They worshipped Venus. They worshipped Adonis. And in connection with the worship of Venus, you had temple prostitution. And with the worship of Adonis, you also had temple prostitution. With Venus, they called them temple virgins or vestual virgins. But they were anything but virgins. And then with Adonis, they had homosexuality. So that was kind of what was going on in this city religiously when the apostle and his team made it there to Thessalonica religiously. Along with the trade, along with uh, the thinkers of the day, this is a major, major place. The world made their way to Thessalonica through the Ignatian path, what's called the Ignatian pathway. They made their way to Thessalonica. So this was a place where you would find the world at. All kinds of people with all this pagan worship going on, the trade there, thinkers, philosophers, all of this kind of situation was in Thessalonica. When the Apostle Paul gets there, they have, remember in Philippi, they have been beaten. So they walk into Thessalonica, Thessalonica, they're in Greece and Europe, and they are still twisted in their body. There is still pain in their body, and yet they continue to spread the gospel throughout the European continent. When they get to Thessalonica, the Bible tells us what happens. They go into the synagogue, as is the custom of the Apostle Paul, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And the Bible tells us in verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now remember, as Paul and his company walk into Thessalonica, they're in the synagogue, then you have the Jewish people talking about God, talking about the coming of the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to come, And when Paul walks in, he lets them know the Messiah is not going to come. The Messiah has already come. And there's a couple of people in that synagogue. One of them's name is Jason. The Hebrew word would be Joshua. Another one was named Aristarchus. And when Jason and Aristarchus hear the apostle Paul, they're in the synagogue, make a statement that the Messiah has already come. It blows their mind. Because they've heard about the coming of the Messiah that He is going to come by the Old Testament Scriptures there in the synagogue. But when Paul says He is come, he gets the attention of Jason and Aristarchus in that synagogue. And as he's preaching there in the synagogue, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has come, that is all that that synagogue ruler can take. He doesn't believe what they're saying. And the Bible tells us he's had enough of it. And as a result of that, then Paul and uh, his team here have to go over to Jason's house. And the Bible tells us that they are there for about three weeks or three Sabbath days teaching them. Okay, So look at verse 2 again. 
And Paul, as he ministered, or as the manner was, went into them, and three Sabbaths reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. The Messiah is come, but when He comes, He's not just going to come in glory. He's going to have to suffer first. He's going to have to die. He'll be raised from the dead. And then the Bible tells us uh, after that He would be glorified. Of course, at that point in verse 4, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks. So we have God-fearers also in the synagogue. A great multitude of the chief women, not a few. So we have a lot of people who are believing what is being preached. That Jesus Christ has come. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That Jesus Christ must die and suffer, etc. And they believe the message of the Apostle Paul, also God-fearers and chief women of Thessalonica. Verse 5, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all this city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So now we say they have left the synagogue, they've gone into the house of Jason, who was a believer uh, in what was preached, and the Scripture tells us that the Jews, the unbelieving Jews that were in that synagogue, they were moved with envy. They're moved with jealousy because they're starting to lose the numbers out of their synagogue, and these people are following uh, Jesus Christ now. So because of envy, they go and take, they go into the marketplace, they find certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and that means they go out there and they find men just standing around. These are the stand, standers, you know, they're just standing in the marketplace, uh, just standing by, they are the loafers in the city, you know. And what you need to know about this city as we sort of try to get on a roll here is that this city was basically sort of like a hippie hangout. Okay? And not only did you have the pagan worship of Adonis and Venus there, and you had Jewish synagogue there, you have the thinkers there, you have the trade there, but it's also a place where people who don't want to work enjoyed living. And that was basically a characteristic of Thessalonica. They, there were so a lot of people there just did not want to work. It's not like some people who want to work but don't have a job. These people didn't want a job. Okay, so they're sort of like the hippie. It's sort of like the hippie hangouts uh, in that culture of that day. So what happens? The Jews go down and they find some of these loafers out there on the streets. Are y'all with me today? Where you getting this, Pastor? Well, I'm getting it from the text here, but I'm also getting it from First and Second Thessalonians. You'll read First and Second Thessalonians, you'll get the background. So they go out there and they find these loafers standing in the streets, you know, people that don't want to work, and and they stir them up to create a persecution against uh, the church. So look at it again, please. But the Jews which believe not move with envy took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort can be translated loafers, and gathered a company and set all this city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So persecution now is hitting that church there in Jason's house. The Bible tells us that he was there for about three Sabbath days, the Apostle Paul. Now verse 6, When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. 
whom Jason have received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. So they are preaching that Jesus is the true king and that Jesus is the Lord. So <clears throat> this is not going very well there in the city because Thessalonica was a Roman colony. And to say that there's another king besides Caesar is going to stir up trouble in that uh, colony of, of Thessalonica. Okay, so y'all still with me so far? Verse 6, when they I read it again, when they found them not, they drew Jason, certain brethren, unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. But they did not, they were not turning the world upside down. The world was already upside down. By preaching the gospel, they were turning the world right side up. Okay? Uh, a person's life in sin is upside down. And when you get born again, then your world is turned right side up. You know, so they, they are, they are claiming that these men are turning the world upside down when really what they're doing is they're turning the world right side up. Okay? So the scripture tells us they don't like what's being preached because, of course, they believe that Caesar is the king, but now Jesus is being preached as the true king. Verse 8, they troubled the people, the rulers of the city, when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason, that means Jason paid a money deposit, basically a bond that secured basically what they're saying. We're not going to cause any trouble in the city. The preaching of the Apostle Paul is not here to cause problems in the city. And we're going to give you some money to guarantee that the preaching of the Apostle Paul is not disrupting this city. Okay? You with me so far? But that did not stop the Jews from persecuting the church. So as a result of that, after being uh, in this city approximately three weeks, it tells us they taught three Sabbath days, the Apostle Paul has to leave Thessalonica. And he leaves this little church in persecution. Okay? They are suffering greatly. They are in tribulation. Heavy tribulation. And now the Apostle Paul who has come and has started the church, he has to leave. Why did he leave? Not because he was worried about persecution himself. He had already been beaten in Philippi for preaching the gospel. So he wasn't trying to avoid persecution. What he was trying to do is avoid this little church getting a problem with the government. You understand? Because of the disruption of the Jews. So, and all of this was, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll find out, Paul says, this was a hindrance of Satan. Satan was using these religious Jews to stir up trouble for the church in Thessalonica so that he had to leave Thessalonica because of this problem. It was Satan. Satan rising up against the church of the living God. So after, can you imagine this? After the Apostle Paul starts this church, a few weeks later, three weeks there in the Sabbath day teaching, and then I don't know exactly how long he was in Jason's house, but after that he has to leave. And he leaves that little church, and there's brand new babies there. There's brand new converts there. But I will tell you that the Apostle Paul, that three weeks, he put so much into that little church that they were with, able to with, withstand and stay strong in the midst of a heavy, heavy persecution and heavy tribulation. 
We know by 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that He taught them about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that these little Thessalonians, these, this little church here in Thessalonica, was looking for the perusia of Jesus. They were looking for the return of Jesus. Okay? We know Paul taught them that. We know Paul taught them that Jesus is God. Okay? He taught them a lot of powerful truths. They came into the kingdom. They were waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. They were looking for Jesus to come back. His perusia or His presence, His coming. And so there was a lot that the Apostle Paul put in this little church. But basically, can you imagine after a pastor coming and starting a church after three weeks saying, i got to go. So that that little church did not have the Apostle Paul to help them in a physical way. And here they are, Jason, Aristarchus, and others in this church trying to live for the Lord without the Apostle Paul, without their pastor, amen, suffering heavy persecution at the hands of the Jews here. And they don't even have the Apostle Paul to help them get through it. But he put something inside of them that made them strong enough to stand and strong enough to make it through heavy, heavy tribulation. Say praise the Lord. Now he goes over, the Bible tells us they leave, they have to leave, as I said, Thessalonica, and they go over to Berea. Look at verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. So let me show you that back up here on the map. Philippi to Thessalonica, and then about 60 miles to Berea. Okay? So remember that little church over here in Thessalonica. They're being persecuted. They're suffering right now. The Apostle Paul has to get out of town because of the situation there. Now, they go to Berea, and they're going to start another church in Berea. The Scripture says in verse 10, The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So now they go into the synagogue of the Jews again, but now they're in Berea. And the Bible tells us these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. So they were even more noble than the Thessalonica people because when the Word of God was preached to these people in Berea, there was no resistance to the Word of God. They didn't resist the Word of God. They were not stubborn. They were not closed-minded concerning the Word of the Lord. They were ready to hear God's Word. Their mind was open, ready to receive the Word of the Lord. And not only ready to receive the Word of the Lord, but they went back in that Old Testament because that's all they had. And they studied to see if what these men were preaching to them was the truth or not. Even though they were open-minded toward the Gospel, they were not gullible. Okay, so they were noble. They were noble. They were, when you say noble, they were the kind of people that were, uh, how could I put it? Reasonable people. They were reasonable people. So when you brought the Word of God to them because they were reasonable people or noble people ready to receive the Word of God, that's a great thing. But at the same time, they were careful about what they were listening to. They wanted to make sure that this was in the Word of God. Now remember, this is a Jewish synagogue, so they know that Old Testament. 
And they want to be absolutely sure that what the Apostle Paul is preaching to them here is in that Old Testament. Say amen. amen. Okay. So they had some great qualities about them. Now the Bible tells us we go on from there. Verse 12, at, the, at this point, Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. Say Greeks. We're in Greece, remember. We're in Europe. So we're talking about the Greeks here. We're talking about the Gentiles. And many of these people in Berea are becoming believers. Is that correct? Okay, verse 12. Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, of men not a few, and of men not a few. So there's multitudes coming even in Berea. Now verse 13, we got another problem. Because the Jews up there in Thessalonica which created such a problem and a persecution against the church there, they come down to Berea and they're going to try to cause problems for the church in Berea as well. So look at verse 13. But when the Jews at Thessalonica had knowledge that the Word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. Alright? You with me? Verse 14. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timothea abode there still. So Timothy and Silas stay in Berea, but the apostle Paul catches a ship. He's going to go to Athens. Alright, so look up here on the map. He leaves Timothy and Silas back here in Berea. Now remember, Luke is in Philippi. Timothy and Silas is in Berea. The Apostle Paul catches a ship 200 miles over to Athens, Greece. Okay? So he goes by himself to Athens, Greece at this point. The Scripture tells us then as we look at it, verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas, and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. You with me so far? So now we have, the Bible tells us that Saul and Timothy is going to join the Apostle Paul in Athens. When they get to Athens, the Apostle Paul is going to ask them, how's it going in Thessalonica? How's that little church at Thessalonica? How's the church in Berea? Okay? And when they get to Athens where Paul is, they will tell Paul the bad news. Okay? The bad news is that there are some people in the church who are discouraged. Some people in the church are going back to the Jewish synagogue. They're apostatizing. Some of those people in that church have quit their jobs waiting for the coming of Jesus. So why, why keep working if Jesus is fixing to come back? You say, are you with me so far? So, and not only that, but the church is under heavy persecution and these new believers are being beaten for the faith. So with this bad news comes from Timothy and Silas. And you can read First Thessalonians, the Bible tells us uh, about this. Let me go over to First Thessalonians then in chapter 3. When Paul gets the news that this little church in Thessalonica 
is being beaten and suffering persecution, tribulation, that some of the believers there are quitting their jobs and thinking that Jesus is coming back really soon and some of them are apostatizing from the gospel. Uh, this really is troubling to the Apostle Paul. So he sends 1 Thessalonians by the hands of uh, Timothy and Silas back to Thessalonica. Go to chapter 3, please, of uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left where? At Athens alone. Alright, so <clears throat> Silas and Timothy have come down. They've told the Apostle Paul the condition of the church in Thessalonica. He gets to a point when he, he is so worried about them. He had to leave them behind. They're suffering persecution. He's got this bad news that's come to him about the church there. He's very, very concerned. He gets to the point he can't take it anymore. Okay? He's got to find out. He's got to try to help these people get through these things. So the Bible tells us while he's waiting in Athens, he's going to send Timothy and Silas again back to Thessalonica with 1 Thessalonians. Okay? Why? Because he has to deal with people not wanting to work in this hippie hangout. People who are saying, we're going to wait for the coming of Jesus. Why do we need to work? Are y'all with me? He's going to try to help them understand. Some of them are being persecuted. Some of them are worried that, you know, some of the believers are already starting to die before Jesus Christ has come back. And they've missed the coming of the Lord. So the Apostle Paul's got to help them. Alright? Basically, he's going to let them know that those people who died didn't miss the coming of the Lord because when Jesus comes back, they're going to be raptured. You understand? Okay, so this is what's going on. He's got to help them through these things. And I know I'm putting you to sleep, but that's just the way it is. Okay? So he's there in Athens, and he's going to send First Thessalonians back to them, which we have already preached all of these epistles to you. Amen. We've gone through every epistle in the New Testament. Amen. So if you want more detail, then get these epistles. I'm trying to slot them, though, to where they actually were written in the book of Acts. Okay, so while the Apostle Paul is in Athens, Greece, he's got the bad news that's come to him. He sends Timothy and Silas back with 1 Thessalonians while he's there in Athens, all right? Look at verse 16, Acts 17, 16. He's waiting there for them in Athens, but he's going to send them back. Let me go over here a little bit further down. Okay, no, okay, I'm going to stop right there. Alright, so anyway, go back, go to 1 Thessalonians 3. Let me get this clear in your mind. Verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Get that? Because they are heavily being persecuted right here. So he said, I can't, uh, forbear any longer. He said, I just, I've got to try to help you here. Verse three, that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So you know we're appointed this kind of suffering. Okay? So don't be moved. Keep living for the Lord. Keep going. Don't quit. 
in the midst of persecution. And later on, basically, he's going to tell them. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that in just a minute. Okay. Verse 4. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and you know, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distressed by your faith. Okay? So even though they've got problems, there's some there in the church that they're holding strong to their faith. So he's got good news and bad news. The good news is that some is continu- they're continuing in the faith. The bad news is that some is quitting their jobs, waiting for the coming of Jesus. Some of them are being beaten, persecuted. Uh, some of them believe that they've missed the coming of the Lord because some of the brethren have died. So there's a lot of things going on here and the Apostle Paul is really worried about them. Okay? Okay, go down to uh, verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Okay, keep going. Keep living for God. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Okay, so anyway, you can read 1 Thessalonians. Uh, if you read 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, you'll find out how they entered into Thessalonica. You'll read about how in Athens uh, He sends Timotheus back to them to check on them with the letter of 1 Thessalonians to correct the problems there. Okay, so let's go back to Acts. Acts 17. Okay, let's go to 15. So in other contexts, and they that conducted Paul brought him into Athens and received a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed they departed. At that point when he get, when they come to him in Athens, they tell uh, Paul the condition of that little church in Thessalonica. Okay, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Okay, so now we know where he's at, and this thing just went off. So I'm, I'm going to do me a favor, brother. There's a map in my office. Get that map for me, okay? And I'll just show you uh, on a flip chart map what's going on here. Okay, it's back on. Good, thank you. Okay, look, he is right here in Athens, Greece. Now, you've heard about Athens, right? The culture of Athens, Greece, the the images, the art that's there. Thanks, brother. Yeah, let's let me have that just in case. Thanks, brother. Okay. Athens, Greece is known as the cultural location of the world. It's got all this beautiful art. It's got the Acropolis, uh, which is basically the Supreme Court of Greece. It's got the Parthenon. The Parthenon was a building that was dated to Athena, the mother, they said, that created the air. Okay, and then you have another huge, huge structure there in Greece that housed many, many gods. Okay, so this place has got a lot of art, it's got a lot of temples, it's got so many false gods in it that writers said you could find a god easier in Greece than you could find a man. 
Every pursuit of life had a God in Greece. Every pursuit of life. You name it. Shame had a, had a God. Okay? Everything. Ideologies had a God. They made men into gods. Images of men, on and on it goes. Athena, the mother of the air. Zeus, the god of war. Okay? Just multiple gods there in Greece. And this art and this culture everywhere. Right? And the Apostle Paul walks in there. What kind of response do you think Paul had when he saw all of that beautiful art? He saw these big, beautiful temples and all of these philosophers that were there. Well, how do you think he responded to that? He was not a missionary tourist. He didn't go to Athens, Greece to go check out the sites. Okay? There are some missionary tourists. They go on the foreign field just so they can see the sights. They can take a vacation. But the Apostle Paul was not a missionary tourist. He didn't just go there to check out the culture, to check out the sights, to look at the beautiful temples, to look at all these images, etc., and, and to see the great so-called philosophers or the philosophical, school, philosophical schools that were there. You know, Socrates had stood there 400 years before the Apostle Paul got there in Athens, Greece. He didn't go there because Socrates was there 400 years before. He didn't go there to look at all these wonderful philosophers and this great Greek culture and all this art and all of these buildings. That was not why he went there. When he walked into that city of Athens, he wasn't swept away by its greatness. Let's see what kind of response he had when he got there. The Bible tells us, verse 16, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. The word stirred means, and this is not the Holy Ghost, it's his spirit. The Bible doesn't say it's the spirit of God, he says it's his spirit. His spirit is stirred in him. Okay? And Zechariah talks about a prophecy, the, the sons of the Jews would be stirred against the sons of the Greeks. And we have the Apostle Paul going into this city and he doesn't go in and go, wow, look at this. This is really neat. Look at this art. Look at these temples. Hey, there's the school of Epicurus. There's the school of Stoa, the Stoics. Oh, wow. These are, these are the people who follow Plato's thinking. He didn't walk in there and he didn't get swept away by the beauty of that culture. He didn't get swept away by the art and the temples and, and all of that. The Bible says when he went in there, when he saw all, the, the city was completely given to idolatry. Idols everywhere. Images everywhere. He didn't look at them as pretty art. They were idols. It says that his spirit was stirred in him. He became angry. He became passionate on the inside. He didn't go in there and say, wow, this is neat. He got mad when he saw it. Say, this is a neat place to be. I'm going to enjoy myself while I'm here. No, he didn't enjoy himself. He was angry because of, of the idolatry that he had seen in that culture and all of these philosophies, you know, that were in that area of Greece were, were not bringing these people to truth. Say amen. So what does he do then? 
the Bible says he stirred his spirit, his spirit stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. The whole city. Okay? Verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue. There he goes. He goes into the synagogue there with the Jews and with the devout persons. These are the God-fearers. And in the market daily with them that met with him. So he goes into the synagogue. He disputes with the Jews that are in the synagogue there. And then he leaves the synagogue and he goes down at the foot of the Acropolis or Mars Hill. And he is in the marketplace there, the Agora. And he finds people in that marketplace, the Agora. Philosophers are there in that marketplace, the Agora. And he stands up and he starts preaching Jesus Christ. You know? He's, he, he's a tent maker. Maybe he's selling his tents at this time. Okay, he, keep in mind, he's by himself at this point. And so in the marketplace, maybe he's selling some of his tents or his talits. And as he's doing this, or maybe he's buying some things that he needs, he's preaching Jesus Christ the whole time. Okay? Alright, so you get the picture here, correct? Verse 18, a couple of the philosophers are there in that marketplace, in the Agora. The Bible tells us one of them is the Epicureans, verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans, and then number two, and of the Stoics encountered him. Are y'all with me? So as Paul is preaching Jesus Christ, uh, you understand what I'm telling you now, He at, at this point he's not going to be preaching to the Gentiles here in Athens like he would to the Jews that are in Athens. He would tell the Jews in Athens that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is come. Okay, etc. But these people are not looking for the Messiah. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. They're idol worshippers. So he's not going to preach to them about the coming one, the coming Messiah. He's going to preach to them about the one true God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sustainer of life and, and on and on. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But as he's standing there and he, you know, he's preaching, the, preaching about Jesus Christ, uh, we got some Epicureans that come up and some Stoics. And the Bible said they lay hold on him. That doesn't mean that they lay violently on a hold of him. They just kind of grab him and say, hey, we want to hear you talk some more. And they're going to take him up to Mars here, Hill, the Areopagus, the Supreme Court of Athens, Greece, so that they can get him away and they can listen to him talk some more. But anyway, let's talk to you a little bit about the Epicureans. Who are these Epicureans, these philosophers? The Epicureans, sought, they thought their answer was overcoming the flesh by giving the flesh whatever it wants. That was their philosophy. Okay? The only way that you can overcome the flesh is just give the flesh what it wants. If the flesh wants to drink, give the flesh as much alcohol as it can stand. That's the way they overcame the flesh. By giving the flesh what it wants. If the flesh, if the flesh wants sex, Give, give the flesh sex at all costs. You understand? Give it what it wants. Just go unbridled lust, uncontrolled lust. That is the philosophy of the Epicureans. Their pursuit was pleasure. And they were atheist. And they were evolutionist. 
They did not believe that God created anything. They believed that it just evolved. They, be, they were atheists. They did not believe in God. They basically, as Paul will later say, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And once you die, that's it. Okay, this is it. This is it. This was their philosophy. So they went through life pursuing pleasure. That was the highest virtue was pursuing pleasure and gratifying the flesh and overcoming the flesh by giving the flesh whatever it wants. They believed that this life was it. Okay? That there is no God and so live it to the fullest. And then on the other hand, really if you go back to Epicurean, uh, Epicurus I should say, he really taught live the simple life. Live the simple life. Uh, live the simple life so you don't have to experience any pain. You see? It's all about pleasure. Don't have pain in your life. Don't have suffering in your life. Just go after pleasure and gratify the flesh. But his ideal was just to live a simple life and don't let your mind be disrupted. You know, don't experience any pain. Just, just life is about pleasure and about enjoying yourself and gratifying the flesh. But live the simple life. That was his plan ultimately. But they took it, that plan of gratifying the flesh, overcoming the flesh by pleasure, the other extreme by giving the flesh whatever it wanted. Okay? So do you understand who they are? They don't believe that there is a God. They're atheists. They believe in evolution. That everything just you know came into existence by evolution. And the highest pursuit of life is pleasure. And you overcome the flesh by pleasure. That was their philosophy. But that was wrong. It was a lie. Amen. And then, on the other hand, you have the Stoics, the Bible says. And really, they're, they're some of my favorite characters in the Bible. As far as the philosophers, they're, they're just, you know. I talk about the Stoics a lot. The Stoics, on the other hand, were not atheists. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was in nature. And the highest pursuit of life was living as close to nature as you could get. And God is in everything. Everything. You know, he's in the trees, he's in the water. He's, they were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything and that the highest virtue is nature. And they believed, are y'all with me today? In restraining the flesh. That's how you overcome the flesh, they thought, was by just restraining the flesh. Don't give it what it wants. Don't let it be happy. Don't let it be sad. Just be indifferent in life. And they were the fate, they believed in fate. Anchor Yo Bible commentary says they believed in fate. And fate is what will be, will be. Okay? So they went through life and they were totally indifferent to life. They would not let their flesh enjoy anything. They would, they did not want their flesh to get involved in any kind of uh, emotion at all. So when you came across these people, what will be, will be, you know. And, and they just, they were just stoics. They'd sit there with no emotion, you know. And the key word of the stoic was suicide. Because ultimately that's what their goal was. Because I can't enjoy anything in life. I'm not supposed to experience anything. I'm just going to be indifferent to everything. 
I'm not going to give myself to anything. I'm going to restrain my flesh, restrain my flesh from any uh, uh, appetites. I'm going to restrain my flesh from enjoying anything in life. I'm going to restrain my flesh. That's how you get the victory over the flesh is saying no to the flesh. So what will be will be and I'm just going to just settle for whatever comes. And then suicide is my best option. The best thing I can do with this flesh is to kill it. So that was the stoic. And I mean, I, I think I've been probably around more Stoics in my ministry than I have uh, Epicureans. I don't think I've ever really come across an, uh, anybody that was an atheist, really. There might be some that said they were atheists, but really not. I don't really think I've ever come across a whole lot of evolutionists, you know, that don't believe that God created everything. I have come across a few Epicureans that thought just giving the flesh whatever it wanted to was the highest pursuit of life drink themselves into oblivion. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, maybe maybe on that side of it, you know, and maybe come across some people that think this is it, there's nothing after this life. Maybe some of those. But more Stoics. I've come across the Stoics. They're just indifferent, you know. What will be will be, you know. They don't get too excited about anything. They just, just sit around. They're Stoics. They look like statues. And I'm talking about Stoics that, you know, in some, some cases they don't have the full doctrine of what the Stoics believe, but sitting in Pentecostal churches. Say amen. amen. So anyway, hallelujah. I know y'all really enjoyed all that information. I just thought I'd throw it in. Let you know. You know. But the Stoic, he would be indifferent to the Epicureans' thoughts. Of course they would. Because the Stoics were indifferent to everything in life. They just didn't care. They wouldn't let themselves get stirred up or excited about anything, you know. Hallelujah. So, of course, they would be indifferent to the Epicureans who didn't believe in God. They said God is in everything. So, anyway, I'll, I'll get away from them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because the Apostle Paul doesn't even deal with what they believe. He just tells us in this passage that while he was there in the Agora in the marketplace preaching Jesus Christ, that the Epicureans and the Stoics grabbed him by the arm and carried him quickly up to Mars Hill, which is the Supreme Court of Athens, Greece. This huge, huge structure. And honestly, truly, if you look at it, you study it, it is a beautiful place. Okay? And they, so they, they took him, said, we gotta get you away. We wanna to listen to what you're saying because you're bringing some new thing to us. And we love to sit around and talk about new ideas because we worship ideas. We worship philosophy. So we got some other buddies up here, up there on that, uh, up there in Areopagus, you know, up there on Mars Hill and all these philosophers, you know, and we're going to bring you up there. We're going to take you up there and, and you're probably going to stand right where Socrates stood 400 years before you. And we're going to give you an opportunity to speak and, and share these new thoughts and ideas you've got with all the rest of our buddy philosophers who do nothing all day long will sit around and talk about new information. That's all they do all day long. They just sit around and talk about new information. And, and the problem with these people is that everybody in the city thinks they know something. And those are the hardest ones to reach. You'll come across them. 
They may not call themselves Epicureans. They may not call themselves Stoics. They may not call themselves Plato followers who did not believe in the physical resurrection of the body. He believed in the spiritual resurrection, but not the physical resurrection of the body. You may not come across people who call themselves Epicurean or Stoic or Plato followers. You may not come across these philosophers in name, but you'll pick up on their philosophy if you listen to them. You come across somebody who doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection, you've got a Plato philosopher on your hand. you got somebody that's an evolutionist, you've got an Epicurean on your hand. you got somebody that's an atheist, you've got an Epicurean on your hand. You come across a Stoic that says God is in everything, tree huggers, new agers, you've got a Stoic on your hand. Amen? you got somebody that thinks they can, they can gratify the flesh by just living and giving the flesh whatever it wants. You've got an Epicurean on your hand. you got somebody that goes through life and is indifferent to everything in life. You've got a Stoic on your hand. Say amen. And here comes the Apostle Paul and he's preaching Jesus Christ. And Hey, we need to get you. Hey, this is a new idea. You're preaching resurrection. He's preaching resurrection, which they didn't believe because Plato didn't believe in the physical resurrection. He's preaching resurrection and he's preaching Jesus Christ and to these crazy people here who worshipped everything but worshipped nothing. They thought the Apostle Paul was preaching the resurrection as a separate God from Jesus Christ. Because they worshipped ideas. Well, they're really confused. So grab him up, boy. Take him up there to this, to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Let's see what he's got to say. You know, our buddy's going to really enjoy this. We have another, another idea, you know. We have another, uh, teaching coming here. We want to get the, the scoop on this new thing. Yeah, this is exciting. You know, you know, you get it. They just want to add this to all the rest of their information. So the Bible tells us in verse, okay, I'll read verse 18 for you. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? The word babbler means he's like a little sparrow going around picking up seeds. Okay? They said Paul is a babbler. Basically, Paul is an ignoramus. And he's the kind of man that'll go and pick up a little bit of knowledge from here, and he'll pick up a little bit of knowledge from there. And he'll get a little bit of knowledge from here and a little bit of knowledge from there. And pretty soon he's like a little bird that picks up seed or picks up crumbs on the side of the road. He just gets a little here and a little there and a little. And he comes up with this new idea and that's the way he makes his living. By going around and collecting little new ideas and then sharing it with people. He's a babbler, they said. He's an ignoramus. That was their estimation of the Apostle Paul and the message that he was preaching in comparison to their great philosophy. The Greek philosophy, you know. And all their gods all around, the Parthenon, Athena, the mother who made the, the air, and, and Zeus, the god of war, etc., you know. And all these gods, every pursuit of life, every idea, every philosophy had a god. Look at it. Look at it. And here comes this man named Paul. They said, he's a babbler. He's an ignoramus. He's a seed picker. 
He's like a little bird going around getting little thoughts here and there and then he shares his new thoughts and that's the way he makes his living is just going around picking up new ideas from different places like a little bird and then bringing it and sharing it with people. That was their estimation of the Apostle Paul. The Bible says, what will this babbler say? Others, some, others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. To them, he said, he's a setter forth of strange gods, plural, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So for them, Jesus was one God he was preaching and the resurrection was another God that he preached to them. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, or Mars Hill, or the Hill of Eris. This was where the Supreme Court was located. Okay, you got to realize when he stood there, uh, some people would have said, "Well, Socrates stood here 400 years before you." The great philosophers were gathered there. You know, they probably dressed in their their white togas, and they knew so much. You know, and and so he he walks up there to the Supreme Court. And he could look on one side of himself and he would see the Parthenon, the huge temple that was ded- dedicated to Athena. And what did she do? She was the mother of the air. And then he could look at another temple and there were gods, innumerable gods in this temple, right there adjacent to this Areopagus at Mars Hill. The Bible tells us, And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Their whole life just sitting around talking about new ideas. Amen. So we got to hear the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's bringing some new idea. He's bringing, uh, uh, we're going to have to add a couple of gods to our, to all these gods we have here in Greece. We're going to have to add a couple of more. We're going to have to call one resurrection and one call Jesus. We'll just add him to the rest of our idols. They want to hear the Apostle Paul. Now, remember their estimation of him is just a little seed picker. He's a babbler. Say amen. Yeah. And they're the great wise ones. You know, they're the great thinkers of the day. Hallelujah. Well, you know, I think a lot of pastors face the same situation when they get up and they start trying to preach to their congregations. You know, the congregation looks at them, these are little babblers. You know, but we're the great thinkers. And hallelujah. So just just grace me with your presence this morning. Okay. You know, they knew everything, friend. In their mind, they knew everything. And those are the hardest to reach. The Bible then goes on and tells us, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Now, now I want you to, if you can, I don't know, I don't know how you do it, but just think about this man standing there in these temples all around. A temple to Athena, a temple to Venus, a temple uh, to Adonis, a temple to uh, you know the war god, the sex, the sex goddess, and, and all of this around him. 
And he's standing there and he's surrounded by these so-called great philosophers who have come from the great philosophical schools of Greece. And here he is. The Bible tells us, as he stands there in the midst of Mars Hill, this is the Areopagus, said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Notice he doesn't start out his message by telling them that the one that the Bible says in the Old Testament that is going to come is here. He doesn't preach to them the sent one of the Messiah like he did to the Jews. They're not looking. They don't know. They wouldn't know what he was talking about if he tried to tell them about a coming Messiah, the sent one of the Old Testament. We're talking about. All right. He is. The Bible says he looks at them and he says, "I perceive that you are too superstitious." The Greek word is, you are a demon. You give reverence to demons. The Apostle Paul wasn't swept away as he looked at these philosophers and said, Woo, I'm in the presence of the great. He said, I perceive that you are too superstitious. You are reverent to demons. The things that you teach, he's letting them know, have come from demons. Greek philosophy, he's letting them know, has come from demons. Socrates, 400 years before this, before Paul stood here, 400 years before that, Socrates even declared out of his own mouth that he got his knowledge from demons. So when Paul says, I perceive you're too superstitious, he says, all of this right here, this philosophy and all this idolatry, he said, is of the devil. You're too superstitious. That was his estimation of it. He wasn't caught up, woo, swept away by the great intellect of these men. He said it came from demons. You're too superstitious or you're too uh, demon reverent. Or one translation is you're too religious. I thank God when I got born again, when I got baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, I lost my religion. See, the problem we have today in the United States of America is that people know quote, unquote, too much. Or they think they know so much. And then number two, they're too religious. And so because people are religious and think they know, you can't reach them because as soon as you start talking to them, they've got their denominational system. I'm a this or I'm a that. Let me just tell you, the United States of America is the most pagan nation that the world has ever seen. And when I say pagan, I mean idol worshipers. Did you hear what I said? The United States of America is the most pagan nation that the world has ever seen. It's got so much religion in it. It's got so much philosophy in it. It's swept through our country. But here's the problem. There's a pretense around all of this paganism. It's called Christianity. So that everybody's a Christian. Even the pagan worshipers are Christians. The president, the president is a Christian. Everybody in the Senate and the House are 
Christians. Everybody on the street. What are you? What kind of faith? Most part, I'm a Christian. Let me tell you something. That's pretense. People are pretending to be Christians when they are pagans. They're religious. They're superstitious. I don't like it, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Hmm. Well, we'll just take something pagan and we'll call it Jesus. You know what I'm saying. So that's why it's so hard for us to reach people in our culture because of the paganism that's in the United States of America. The religion. Everybody's religious and everybody claims to be a Christian. Everybody. And I'm going to tell you, church, that 95% of the churches in this city are as far away from biblical Christianity as Athens, Greece was. Did you hear what I said? Well, they call themselves a Christian church and he claims himself to be a Christian pastor. You go to the Word of God and you compare that New Testament church with what you see in America, the American church. The American church is not the New Testament Christianity. It is not New Testament Christianity. It is filled with religion and philosophy and ideology and everybody thinks they know something. That was the problem with Athens, Greece. So now we got this little babbler here standing before them preaching in their estimation two gods. One, an idea called the resurrection that they did not believe in. And Jesus Christ, who is this? Are y'all here tonight? Whatever time it is. Verse 22, Then Paul stood up in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that you in all things you are too superstitious. You're too religious. Really, you're reverent to demons. And you claim to be worshipers of God. And you worship everything, but I'll say it again, you worship nothing. He said in verse 23, he said, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, he said, I saw you Athenians bringing your little offerings to your little images, to your little idols. You're bringing your food offering to this piece of marble, this piece of stone. You're bringing your, your food so he'll have something to eat. And, and you're bringing water so he'll have something to drink. And, you probably put a coat on him in the wintertime. I don't think they have winter there. I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm, and you better put some glasses on him so he can see. He's getting old. Getting... You get the point. When he talks about devotion, he said, you're bringing your, to your so-called gods things you think they need. Because you're devoted to them. 
You're devoted to Athena, the mother of the air. You're devoted to Zeus, the war god. You're devoted to Venus, the sex god, goddess. You are, are y'all with me today? You worship the sun. You believe Apollo gets in his chariot every day and goes through the sky in his chariot. That's the sun. And you worship Apollo. You worship the moon. You worship the stars. And you worship ideas. You worship shame. You worship reason. All of these things. Every pursuit of life. Every pursuit of life. Every thought. Every idea. Every emotion. They worshiped it. He said, I walked by and I saw an inscription. He said, you didn't even build an idol to this one, but you just put over, you wrote over on a shingle somewhere, if there's any God we don't know about, okay, we better make sure we don't forget one. And so, we'll put over here an inscription, to the unknown God. And we'll worship this unknown God that we haven't built an image to, we just got an inscription to him. We'll worship this unknown God. Just, just, you know, they're the broad-minded ones. The broad-minded ones, the broad-minded believer that says, you know, just in case we're missing it somehow, we got all these thousands and thousands of idols here, but in case we're missing one, we'll make an inscription to him. And we'll worship Him, the one we don't know. Are y'all with me this You know, they're broad-minded. They, they, you, now, you've got to listen to me because every once in a while you'll come across somebody like this. Is They'll tell you, they have their religion, so leave them alone. You're broad-minded. That's your philosophy in life. They have their religion, leave them alone. Okay? These people are broad-minded. They got all these idols, they worship all these false gods, but yet just in case they're missing someone, they don't want to offend that God that they don't know about. So we're broad-minded, we'll make room for another religion, we'll make room for another God, and we'll just add Him to the rest. Yeah, okay. Paul says, well... He said, I noticed that inscription to the unknown God. And by the way, in Greece, that little inscription was written all over the place. That wasn't just in Athens, Greece. You could find that inscription in multiple places in Greece or Europe. They just didn't want to leave a God out. They didn't want to offend that God. Uh, you know, they were broad enough, broad-minded enough to have whoever, whatever God, just add him to the rest of them. Okay, so you're with me today? So we've got philosophy here. We've got the worship of ideas here. We have got broad-mindedness here. We've got religious people here. We've got people who think they know something. And we're not going to leave any God out because we don't want to offend anyone. Say amen. He said, I passed by and beheld your devotions and found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Paul says, I, I represent Him. The one you don't know about is the one I'm going to preach to you about. Now, 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 but catch this. I want you to see this. With all these false gods that they had, 
When they wrote that inscription to the unknown God, they were admitting their need. Because they were saying basically, we haven't found Him in all of this. And we haven't found Him in all of our philosophies and and what our teachers taught us. We haven't found Him. We know He's somewhere. So with all this idolatry and all this religion that they had, they still not had found God. And I'm telling you the same. Listen, I was raised in religion. I was raised in church. You could go to church and you could see idols everywhere. I didn't go to that kind of church. But some people do. They go to church today. They call it church. There's idols everywhere. They do not find God there. Paul says, I saw that inscription to the God you don't know about, the one that you know you need. He said, I'm going to tell you who He is. I'm going to preach to you. I'm going to preach to you about this God. Woo! Now, remember what I told you about what the philosophers believe. Because Paul, when he preaches, he's fixing to refute their demonic doctrines. Amen. Now, somebody would say Paul failed in this. Maybe I even said that in the past when I look at 1 Corinthians. Because from here, he's going to go to Corinth from Athens. He's only going to have a few converts in Athens. And from there, he's going to go to Corinth. And and when he gets to Corinth, he says, I came to you not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the power and of the Holy Ghost. And I, you know, so you could take that and say, well, Paul tried to speak eloquently in Athens. But when he got to Corinth, he said, I'm not going to do that here. Because I only had a few converts in Athens. And I think I've said that maybe Paul failed. But as I look at it, I don't believe Paul failed here. I don't believe he failed. Praise the Lord. I believe when he got in Corinth, he knew he had to go a different approach. That he couldn't quote the, any philosopher. Say amen. Not man's wisdom. Not philosophical wisdom. The wisdom of God. He said, I'll preach that to you. So, I don't think he fell. But let's see what he preached, alright? He said to the unknown God, Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, Him declare I unto you. He said, I'm going to preach that unknown God to you. He said, you ignorantly worship Him. And you bring your little devotions to Him as if He needs you to bring Him food and water. He needs your dollar so he can, you know, he, he need, he's broke. He, he's got to have your money. He's got to have your, yeah, okay, okay. You call those gods that you made with your own hands that look just like you? Athenians? They're no, they're not as good as you are because you have to take them food. And you made them with your hands and you made them in your image. How can they be gods when you created them and they are less than you are? He said, I'll preach to you this, the one true God. 
So he's standing there in Mars Hill, surrounded by all that philosophy. He's not sucked up. Oh, this is wow, look at this. This is neat. Woo, man. Hey, glad to meet you, Mr. Epicurean follower. How nice to meet you, Mr. Stoa follower. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. This is my opportunity. We'll just become, we'll just add another philosophy to your list. And praise God. He was angry. So he stands there and he begins to preach the one true God of the Bible. He doesn't talk about the Messiah. He doesn't even name Jesus Christ in the passage. Did you catch that? He doesn't even call Jesus by name. Wow. Y'all knew that. Okay. Because yeah, right. y'all know everything. <laughs> Really, right now, I need to get my glasses and put them down about right here and go. All right, the Epicureans don't believe that God created anything. They're evolutionists, right? And the Stoics believe that God is in everything, right? And on and on we go. So, all right, Plato doesn't believe in the resurrection, physical resurrection of the dead. So now, Paul begins to preach this one God. He says, God that made... Who is this God, by the way? You got it. Yeah, see, you know who he is. And Paul knew who he was. Paul knew who this God was he was preaching that created all things. This transcendent God. You worship the sun. You say the sun rose and Apollo is streaming through the sky. And the further the sun goes, that's Apollo's chariot. This God that Paul is preaching to you made that sun. He made the moon. He made the stars. And you worship Him. And He's on the outside of all of that. And He created everything. He's the transcendent God far above all things. Even beyond your finite comprehension. Okay, so let me read it to you. So now, you know I'm in the Bible. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. He's the Creator. And how, how can you put the Creator in a little house? This Parthenon to Athena, who's supposed to be the goddess or the mother of the air, is foolishness. Zeus, this so-called God of war, is foolishness. The sun God, there's, He's no God. Are you here with me today? Foolishness. The God that Paul is preaching to them about created everything, created the whole universe. Is so big, He's outside of the universe. He inhabits all space. And you can't take this God who is so vast and so transcendent and so large. The one who created the universe is on the outside of the universe and in the universe at the same time. He's not in everything like pantheism, but He dwells by His omnipresence everywhere. And you cannot take this omnipresent God and put Him in a house anywhere. You can't lock Him up in that Parthenon there. You can't put Him over here in this temple that's got multiple gods. And this God that created everything, He sustains everything. He's the Lord of heaven. Say Amen. 
He's in control. He not only created everything, but He's in control of everything. He's in control of history. He's in control of the events of time. He's in control of every event on this planet. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He governs it. He rules it. He controls it. He didn't just create it and walk away from it. He created it and maintains it and sustains it and takes care of it. He's the Lord, the sovereign of the universe. He's in control of everything. Epicureans are going, huh? You're preaching me a God that created? I don't believe that, that God created. I believe it evolved. Okay, not true. And he's not only the Lord of heaven, but he's the Lord of the earth. He's the Lord on earth. That means not only is He transcendent far above all, but He's also near. He's imminent. Come on, somebody. Are y'all catching me right now? He's so vast. He's so large. His omnipresence is outside of the universe. He created everything. But yet, even though He's so transcendent, He's imminent. He's near at the same time. Ooh, give the Lord praise in the house. Ooh, I tell you what, I can preach it, Paul. Preach it, Paul. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. They said that in the Old Testament, even when they built the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon said, You can't house God. You put God in a little temple. Say, he, he lives there in that house like you do. We drive down the street, we see your house, we say, brother, sister live right there. No, you can't put God in a house and say, God lives in that house. He's the creator and the sovereign Lord of the heaven and the earth. And you can't put him in a temple. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. Said, I've been noticing you bring your devotions to all these little gods, and you know, this God gives to you. He don't need you to bring him a food offering and a drink offering. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your clothes. He doesn't even care if you forget to worship Him. He doesn't need your devotion. It doesn't offend Him that you've got an inscription over here on a wall that says, To the unknown God. He's not controlled by you. He's not some kind of flippant God, emotional God that has to have something from you. You think he needs your food, your money, your clothes? You think he needs your any of that? He doesn't. He gave it to you. He gave you the food you're drinking, the water that you're drinking, the clothes that you're wearing. The, come on, somebody. He is the one that not only created, not only governs and rules, but he's the one who sustains the whole thing. If it wasn't for God, there'd be no food in the earth. There would be no water for you to drink. Every day, every day that you and I get up, we drink His water. We enjoy His sunshine. We eat His food. 
And if you if you decide I'm not going to worship Him, it's, He's not going to lose sleep over that. He's God. Say praise the Lord, church. He's not going to cry. You think He needs it? They do. These idols you you set up. Mm-hmm. Isn't this beautiful? He, neither is worship with men's hands, worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he give it to all life and breath and all things. This awesome. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for dwell on the face of the earth. One man, from one man, every one of you came from. That one man, his name was Adam. And from Adam, every one of you sitting in this church, everybody in this city, everybody in the world, everybody who's ever lived and who will ever live came from one man. And that man was Adam. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And God, watch this, and God created, you want to know where man came from? God created that man. He is the offspring of God. And you are the offspring of God. God created you. You are His creature. He created you. You want to know where man came from? You came from God. Ultimately, you're the offspring of God. Hallelujah. He made one man. He created that man. And from him, all the rest of us have come. And let me get to that. He hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He said He not only created you, He not only created man, but then He put this group of people on this continent. He put this group of people in this geography and He set the boundaries and determined where you were going to be born and what continents you were going to live on. He is the one who determined it before it ever happen. You didn't just get in Odessa, Texas by chance. God set the boundary. He set the geography of your life. Give the Lord praise in this house. Thank God. Sometimes I think I should be up in Alaska. But you can look at the Lord. You can look and you can see that people who have the ability to absorb more sun than others, God put them on a continent where the sun is bright. And people who can light-skinned people, He put them on continents where the sun is not as hot. Amen. Get more snow. Say amen. I don't know how I ended up in West Texas, man. I can walk outside and go, But I'm just telling you today that God not only created mankind from one man, then He set you in your boundaries and all the continents of this world. These Greek people in Greece right there, God set them right where they were in that place. Give the Lord praise in the house. The Tower of Babel, when they scattered throughout the world, God is the one that was behind sending them to this place into that place. Give the Lord praise in the house. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after Him and find Him though He be not far from every one of, of us even though He is the Creator. And He is transcendent. He's also imminent. If you want Him, reach out and you can touch Him. 
He's alive. His presence is not out there. His presence alone. His presence is here too. If you want to know God, you can touch Him right now. If you could just reach out and touch Him and feel after Him, if happily you might find Him. Oh, give God praise. Let me get the wording right. That you should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. Did you catch that? Paul saying he's here right now. You can reach out and you can touch him right now if you just feel after him. Give the Lord some praise in the house. So he's not just the transcendent God way up there somewhere. He's right here. He's imminent. He, he's near to us. He's Oh, hallelujah. Do you believe that today? That God is near to you right now? Oh, I give him praise in this house. Even the Stoics, I think, at this point, were starting to get excited. Woo! Say amen. Yeah. For in Him we live and move and have our being, our very existence. We got our life from Him. We move in Him. We have our very existence from Him. Praise the Lord. Oh, this is awesome right now. I don't think He failed. I think He knew exactly what He was doing. See how He preaches to Gentiles versus the way He preaches to the Jews. Okay, now watch this. Verse 29, For as much then as we are the offspring of God... The offspring of God, Paul says, even your poets, there's a couple of your poets, you can go back to your poets, and even your poets said, we are the offspring of God. Notice it doesn't say, when he was preaching to them, you're the sons of God. He said, you're the offspring of God, which means you are God's creation. All men on this planet are the offspring of God because they are God's creation. But not all men are sons of God. You have to be born again. You have to be saved to become a son of God. So he says, even your poet said, you are the offspring of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. God created you. And if God created you, then why are you worshiping images that are less than you and calling them God? Give the Lord praise in the house. He said, God, the Godhead, this is a word for deity. The Godhead is, now watch, verse 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone or graven by art and man's device. If you're the offspring of God, how is it that you would think that you could put God in that image? How could you, how do you think that you could take stone or, or gold or silver or wood and make a God? Hallelujah to the Lamb. Come on. And he says, even your poets say you're the offspring of God. So you have misinterpreted even your own poets. You're doing something that the poets did not even uh, tell you to do. They believe that you are the offspring of God. And what you have done, you have misrepresented what they have told you. And you have misinterpreted what they said.
said, because if you would have just listened to even some of your poets, you would not have all these crazy images set up that you call God. Give the Lord praise in the house. I think at that point, the Holy Ghost is on me. I'm on Paul. He's on it, boy. He's really late. He's really preaching right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Stoics are just looking at him. Praise the Lord. Okay. Now watch what he says. For the, and the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He said, all this is ignorant. Your system of religion is ignorant. The worship of the sun God you call Apollo riding his chariot through the sky. God created him. That's ignorance for you to worship the sun. Ignorant for you to worship the moon, the stars. Ignorant for you to worship all these islands. He said, this whole system is ignorance. Their philosophies, philosophies of men, ignorance. He said there was a time God winked at all of this. You know, he didn't, you know, he could come down. What time is it anyway? Then we're talking about time. He could come down right now and he could wipe out everything that is not of Jesus Christ. He could destroy every false religious system. He could wipe out, he could judge it right now. Are y'all with me? He could have come down anytime and just wiped out every one of those idols. He could have sent Athens right into the sea if he wanted to. But no, God said, I'm just gonna kind of, I'm just gonna wink at this ignorance. But Paul is letting them know the new day has come. The new age is here. And God's not going to wink at this ignorance anymore. God's not going to put up with this foolishness anymore. This worship of images and idols. God no longer is winking at that kind of superstition and that kind of religion. Now the Bible says He commands every man everywhere to repent. That's what He says. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a time uh, some of you bowed down to idols. Now, sister, don't lift your hand now. <laughs> you did. You bowed down to idols and you prayed to him and, and you brought a candle. Make sure they, they, you know, they had plenty of light. It's dark in that room. And oh, help me God to preach today. He made it so pretty. You put pictures up for him too. You know, because he didn't want him to get lonely. Anyway. You bowed down and you prayed. Ignorance. Thank God he winked at that, huh? Well, as soon as you bowed your knee, he could have just judged you right there. Could have killed you on the spot. And some of you say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't bow down. Yeah, but you went to those rock and roll concerts and you worshiped. You threw your little hands up in the air and you worshiped those bands. I, I can relate to that. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Thank God God saved me from that junk. And if you didn't do it that way, you just worship yourself. Because you know everything. Anyway, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Everywhere. Repent. Change your mind. Turn from this superstition. Turn from this religion. Change your mind. Turn to the true and living God. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
don't bow down to these images anymore. It's ignorance, he says. Graven, graven art. Man's device. You made him with your own hands. God is calling you to repent. Repent? Oh, you're telling these people, these sophisticated, well-dressed, highly intellectual people to repent? You're telling this culture, you're walking in there talking to them like that, that they need to change? And they're looking around at all this beauty. And this man's saying, you need to repent. You need to change what you're doing. And worship the true and living God. Verse 31, Because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. The past He created. He's the omnipresent God. He's omnipotent God. He's the God of all power. This God who created everything, who's omnipotent with all power, and He knows everything in heaven and in earth. He's omniscient. Praise the Lord. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. This same God, the Bible says, He is calling you to repent because judgment day is coming. Give the Lord worship in the house. He said there's coming a day He said, every one of you philosophers, everybody here in this place is going to stand before this God and He is going to judge. Judge. Judge us for what? Your immorality. Your sin. Your ungodliness. He's going to judge. That's future. Right now, you've got an opportunity to be saved. How is He going to judge? When He judges, He's going to judge in righteousness. Everything that He... His judgment is going to be right judgment. It's not going to be biased. He's not just going to look at people by the outward appearance and judge them. It's going to be a righteous judgment when men stand before this God. Every one of us someday will stand before God. Every one of us will stand before our Creator. The Bible tells us He's going to judge in righteousness. By who? By that man. doesn't even call Him by name. By that man... Whom he hath ordained. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. God raised the man, Christ Jesus, from the dead. And the man, Christ Jesus, is the one you're going to stand before someday. And the fact that He's resurrected from the dead guarantees that there is a judgment that's going to come. He is the God who created everything, sustains everything, doesn't need anything from you. This same God is going to judge you in the future. And this same God is in the form of a man. And this man was resurrected from the dead and you don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead he said Paul is saying I tell you right now that he's alive and I ask you here today do you really know that Jesus is alive we can preach his death People write on his death. They'll write large books on his death. But very little writing given to his resurrection. I want you to know today, he did not only die, but he rose from the dead. And he is going to come back and judge the quick and the dead. He's alive right now. 
the man Christ Jesus who is God come in the flesh. He's alive. How do I relate to him right now? Do I believe that he's alive right now? How do I relate? How do I see him as the Lord in glory? He's the resurrected Lord of glory. He's alive today. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. Oh, he's alive. He's alive. He's not a dead God. He's not an eye. He's not an image. He is the living God who came in human form. He will judge uh, you in the future. So now watch. He's telling him, this God is the creator. This God is going to be the judge. He's also the same God that redeemed you. He didn't just create you. He redeemed you. He revealed himself to man when he came into the world as redeemer, as savior. Oh, what a God he is. Give the Lord praise in this house. This is awesome. Awesome. The same God that created you and sustains all things. The transcendent God far above all. And that imminent God that is near. This God will judge. But this same God revealed himself not only in creation, but revealed himself by coming in a man and dying for you and rising from the dead. And by this man, he's ordained to judge you someday. Give the Lord praise. What he just said was that Jesus is the center of everything. He is the center of creation. He is the purpose of creation. Oh, hallelujah. He's the center of all the ages of time. Oh, give God praise in this house. Yes! Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I thank God he's a living God. I thank God I'm not an idol worshiper anymore. I thank God. I don't have religion anymore. Jesus delivered me from my religion. We say, what kind of, what religion are you? I'm not, a, I'm not in religion. Hallelujah. I have salvation. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is my God who created all things and my Redeemer. This is the God that I serve. I don't have religion. Don't even talk to me about religion. I was saved from religion. Thank God I was saved from religion. You can get in Pentecost. And all you have, a lot of some people come in Pentecost and all they are, they just become just more religious. They have a little more truth, but they got, they just come more religious. God doesn't want you to be religious. He wants you to have a relationship. He's your creator. You're the offspring of God, but you're also the sons of God by the Spirit. You cry, Abba, Father. You say, Daddy, Daddy. He's not only creator, but He's my Daddy. Oh, hallelujah. And He redeemed me by His blood. You see this. Give the Lord praise in the house. It's going against everything they believe. They don't believe in the resurrection. Plato doesn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. What are you talking about? Wow, resurrection. Resurrection. That is amazing. So I don't want to just preach Jesus died. I want to tell you today He lives. So if all I preach to you is that Jesus died for you, you go through life thinking He's still dead. He's alive today. How do you relate to this living Jesus?
And when they heard <coughs> the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They just started laughing at Paul. Others said, we will hear thee again on this matter. We got some who laughed, and we got some who said, tomorrow. The same way it is today. When the Word of God goes forth, you got some people that laugh. They, they think it's a big joke. And then you've got others that's, that procrastinate. God will give me time, and right before I die, then I'll get saved. No, you don't have that promise. They said, we'll hear thee on this again. Never had another chance to hear Paul. How many of y'all are like that today? You just laugh at the things of God, or you then, or maybe you just procrastinate and you're saying, some in the future. That's where they were. See, religion, it's hard to reach those that are religious. It's hard to reach those that think they know. Judgment? Resurrection? What did Paul do when these flippant intellectual people said, or laughed, and said, we'll, we want to hear some more of this. Just we like to talk about things. Let's just get together and let's just talk about it again. When they responded to the gospel this way, by laughing mockery and by saying another time, the Bible says Paul went out from them. He left them. He didn't keep on preaching to them. He said, you don't want to hear it? You don't want to hear it. You, 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 you like the idea of getting together and talking about new ideas, but you're really not after the truth. So when they said, we'll hear thee on this matter again, he knew that they were nothing but flippant intellectuals. He knew that they just wanted to sit around and talk about it as a new idea or philosophy with no intention of ever really wanting to know the truth. And because of that, Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Thank God. There was results. Everywhere Paul preached, every place Paul went to, he had results. The Bible gives us the name of some that believed. One was Dionysius, the other, or he was an area. Opagite, Opagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. There was no sign, no miracles, no wonder done here in Athens. And only a few converts in Athens. But here's the good news. Because when you study history, you will find that with these few people, there was a huge church eventually in Athens, Greece. So that Paul didn't fail here. I know, I know when he left, I know he was extremely discouraged. 
extremely discouraged. Because he's still worried about that little church called Thessalonica that's getting their brains beat out. He's still worried about those little converts in Thessalonica that, that were, some of them, apostatizing back to the synagogue. He's worried about those that were being discouraged because of the trials they were going through. And he stands up here and he preaches while he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to come back there in Athens, having sent them with that letter. What is the outcome? And then he looks around and he's got a few converts in Athens. He was very discouraged and very lonely. And from that place, the 18th chapter of the Bible tells us he leaves Athens, Greece, and he goes to Corinth. And Corinth was Sin City. Corinth was like Las Vegas. It was like Hollywood. If you want to sow your wild oats, you go to Corinth. If you want to give yourself to unbridled lust and passion, you go to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you. He talked about all kinds of sin that they were in. All kinds of sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, he said, and such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. There's been a change in you. Paul walked in Corinth. This, the Corinth. In fact, a definition for immoral person the word they used for an immoral person who had given their life totally to the lust of the flesh, these people were called the Corinthians. You didn't have to be born there. Anybody that sowed to the wind and gave their, their, their life to immorality, they said, we're just going to Corinthianize ourselves. That's how bad it was. So Paul walked in that very wicked city, a lonely man waiting to hear after that first letter had been delivered to Thessalonica what the outcome of that church was and, and a little bit of results there in Athens, Greece. The Bible tells us he comes to Corinth and he found a certain Jew named Aquila and he's Aquila and Priscilla and he joins them and they say, you know, Aquila and Priscilla are tent makers, talit makers and Paul wins them to Jesus Christ. They had just recently been driven out of Rome by Claudius. 49 A.D. Persecution, anti-Semitism is sweeping through the world at that time. And the Bible tells us during the reign of Claudius that Aquila and Priscilla were dispersed from Rome and they found their way to Corinth. God had set it up. Because the Apostle Paul leaves Athens and he gets to Corinth and he finds Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila being the husband, Priscilla being the wife. And he converts them to Christianity. And there in Corinth, he has to make a living. So he gets with them and they make tents together. And the Scripture tells us at that time that he's in Corinth that Timothy comes back. And he tells him, Paul, there's more that have quit working. There's more that have given up because they're discouraged. But there are some that are holding on to the faith. And there's some 
that a word that they missed the coming of Jesus. And so Paul takes up his pen while in Corinth and writes 2 Thessalonians and he explains that before Jesus Christ comes back, there will be an apostasy, a great falling away. And he explains to them, they have not missed His coming. He explains to them the signs before His coming, the apostasy and the Antichrist. And he says, so these signs have not come yet. Jesus has not come yet. You haven't missed His coming. Keep going on with God. Get up and go to work again. Stand up for the Lord in the time of trial and suffering. And so he writes that second Thessalonian letter and he sends them back to Thessalonica. But when they came down from Thessalonica that first time and found him in Corinth, the church of Philippi had put in their hands an offering for Paul. He was having to work with his hands and make tents while he was in Corinth for a temporary period of time. But when Timothy and Silas come down, they've got a gift from Philippi. And they give it to the Apostle Paul so now he can focus on the ministry. Hallelujah. And it's, that, it's at that time that he sends them Timothy and Silas back to the Sennacher with that second letter to explain the events before the second coming of Jesus to encourage them to keep on going and to tell them how much He loves them and to tell them how He's agonized over them, how He misses them, how He wants to see them again, how He's worried about them. And He's saying, listen, I didn't just get out of town just to get out of town. He said, I've agonized over you. I've worried about you. I've been concerned about you from the day I left you. He said, but stay faithful to Jesus Christ. He's coming back. These are the signs. Keep going. Don't quit. When the trial comes and tribulation comes, don't quit. Read 2 Thessalonians. He wrote it while he was there in Corinth. And so now, and Timothy and them leave, and Paul, extremely discouraged. He's ready to go back to Antioch, the home church. And the Lord appears to him in the middle of the night and tells him, I have many souls in this city. I want you to know, friend, I've been to Las Vegas. And if you were to, just by looking by observation, and you look at those people, it didn't come to my mind when I saw all those people. There's a lot of souls right there for Jesus Christ. You understand where I'm coming from? That's where Paul was. He was in that kind of city. God says, I've got many people in this city. I'm sure Paul going, here? In this immoral place? Here? Yeah, Paul. And the Bible said the Apostle Paul, now he's encouraged. He was ready to quit and go back home. He's encouraged now. The loneliness. He's still concerned about that Thessalonian church. But the loneliness is, is a little better now. He's encouraged. And he stayed there in Corinth for 18 months and preached the gospel for 18 months in Corinth. And history says that 60,000 people came to Jesus Christ in Corinth during His ministry. 60,000 Believers, when you're at your most discouraged point, when you're at your lowest point in life, 
God oftentimes brings that revival when you're about ready to quit and give up. That's when God says, no, I have many souls in this city. Where are God? I don't see them. I can't find them. But God says they're here. 60,000 souls came to the kingdom of God. That 18th month, 18th month, 18 month period of time that he was there. You can read all this. It's in there. And then later on when he'll go back to Corinth, Sin City, and revisit the churches there. Praise God. He will sit down in Corinth and he'll write the book of Romans. And if you want to know what it was like in that city, read the first chapter of Romans where Paul lists all of those sins of men. He saw it in Corinth. He wrote Romans from Corinth later on and he wrote Ephesus. And after that 18 month period of time, he wrote Romans in a future visit. Ephesus in a future visit. And after that 18 month period of time, he baptized Crispus. First Corinthians says, in the name of Jesus, Crispus came into the church. You read it, read it, read it. I don't have time to read it all to you. Christmas, baptizing Jesus' name. Hallelujah. He didn't baptize in His own name. He said, I baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Later, when he's in Ephesus in the third missionary journey, he'll write back to Corinth, the letters of, of the Corinthian letter. In closing, He leaves Corinth. Verse 21, But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep the... Well, he goes up to Ephesus. Let me read verse 18. Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren. I just have to go back to this. I feel the Holy Ghost. When you and I are at our lowest point, and Paul was... Paul, when he wrote back, when he wrote St. Thessalonians from this place, he said, pray for me. He's at his lowest point. It's hard for me to imagine a man like Paul getting discouraged. But he did. Pray for me. He said, pray for me. Now after being there, verse 18, Paul after this tarried there yet a good while and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence to Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla are going to be connected to him to the end. When he won those two, that, that husband and that wife, they were connected to Paul. And they served and they labored and they worked with Paul in the gospel for years. No doubt when they left Rome under Claudius' persecution of the Jews and found their way to Corinth, they probably thought, man, this is the end of my life. God said, no, this is the beginning. You'll meet a man by the name of Paul. He'll begin to serve Jesus Christ in the Gospel. So now Paul and Aquila, <clears throat> Paul, Aquila, Priscilla are with him and they travel to Ephesus. And there he is, verse 21. <clears throat> He's there to Ephesus for a little while. <clears throat> verse 19, came to Ephesus, left them there, but he himself entered in the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. 
but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. He walked from Corinth to Ephesus. A little time there. Right here. Sailed from Corinth over here to Ephesus, back into Asia Minor. Didn't stay very long. They wanted him to stay. He said, no. He said, there's a feast in Jerusalem that I need to get to. This would be the Feast of Pentecost at this time. I must by all means keep the feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. i got to get to Jerusalem because there's going to be a multitude of Jews there keeping the feast of Pentecost. And that's what the Bible doesn't tell you is Pentecost, but that's what it was. And when he gets there, what's he going to do? You think he's going there just to keep the feast? He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to witness to all that crowd of Jews while he's there. The Bible says he leaves them there in Ephesus, but he says, I'll promise I'll come back if God wills. In verse 22, and he, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. Thus completes the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's now back at his home church. We can see the journey he took. Antioch of Asia Minor going back and checking on the churches there that he established in the first tour. Tarsus, Derby, Lystra. This is all Galatian territory. Checking on those churches. We found him go. Remember when he had that vision? A man from Macedonia come over and help us. They traveled from Troas. Luke joined them right here. They went to Philippi. You know what happened there. They were beaten. Established a church there. Left Luke there. Went to Thessalonica. He had to leave there after a short period of time. Went to Berea. Those noble Bereans. He goes from there to Athens. He writes one letter of Thessalonians in Athens, I believe. And then from there he goes to Corinth. He writes the second Thessalonians to the Thessalonican church there in Corinth. Encouraged 18 months, had a tremendous revival. Churches being set up all over this area. Goes to Ephesus for a short period of time. Catches a boat. That's the greyhound of the day. No, seriously, all of these routes that they would... I mean, these routes were like greyhound routes. This is something they did all the time. Wasn't just any ship. And catches the Greyhound bus by sea, goes up to the, back to the church of Antioch over here in Syria, the home church. Isn't that beautiful? God bless you. Please stand. Father, I thank You for Your Word today. I pray that this Word has been an encouragement to this assembly, to this church, to this house.